Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a very nice gentleman who I've been having a, a, a nice little rapport with. He, I've been so excited to talk to him because this guy has a 180 perspective on real estate. I don't, I don't know anything he hasn't done. I mean, he, he knows property management, he knows development. Uh, he's a, a, an investor himself, has a brokerage, has been an appraiser. Maybe I'm forgetting something. He is. <laughs> Yeah. the president, president of Estes Group. He is Brian Estes. Brian, welcome to Street Smart Success. Absolutely. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure being here. So I hope to hope to add a lot to your listeners today. I know you will. And did I misstate anything and or did I leave anything out? No, you're, you're right. I have uh, uh, I have done a lot in this business and and I did start as a as a commercial real estate appraiser. That's how I actually got into this business. I don't do any appraisal work anymore. But I transitioned uh, from being an appraiser to a full-time investor and then wound up back in the somehow third-party management and brokerage business. And um, so I've done it all, I guess. But within my company, I don't do a lot of things, uh, but our company does. Why did you um, – so you went from appraiser, full-time investor – and then to brokerage management, why did you do that as opposed to just, you know, continuing just as an investor? You know, man, I always tell people in real estate, it seems like uh, I always use the sailboat analogy. You know, you you seem to always tack, you know, you're going to the same spot. You kind of change directions a few times. But what happened was when I was uh, an investor, you know, I, I didn't, of course, I didn't have unlimited funds. I had to buy properties when I had, could put the equity together and, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I would have people come up to me and say, hey, I, you know, I know you're buying your own projects, but I, I would like to buy a shopping center. I'd like to buy an office building. Can you help me? You know, can you help me run the numbers and do the underwriting? And that was where my evaluation background really helped me out. And, man, I think my first two brokerage deals, I mean, I think I made, you know, $60,000 commission on one and maybe a $30,000, $40,000 commission on another. And, and it was just like, holy cow, man. I mean, I, I didn't do brokerage houses or anything like that. I mean, it was income producing properties and the commissions were just big commissions. And I thought, wow, I could do three or four of these, you know, every year between trying to buy my own projects, like everything else in real estate, you know, you, you, you do one thing and another opportunity presents itself. And before you know it, all the, the people that I was helping buy real estate said, well, you're already managing your projects. Why don't you manage mine? And that's how I got into the third party management business. And, and, you know, and I was able to build a business, you know, from there. And then as I started doing more investments and small developments, and I would say back then I was much more of a redeveloper, you know, and, um, and I was able to hire a manager and I was able to hire a leasing agent. And, and then I was I kind of brought on some agents that I trained. And so, yeah, I kind of did it the reverse way, honestly. You know, most people start out as a broker manager and then they work their way to the investment side. And I just kind of came, came from a different angle. So I see. Well, it, says, it kind of sounds like, um, you know, you just said yes to things. 
As, yeah, uh, I as, did. Yeah, is yeah. They, they, they were logical next steps, and and you took them, you know, kind of by virtue of what you were doing at the time, starting out as an investor, and so it makes a lot of sense. I guess my question is. It's two parts, Brian, is, you know, there you are. I don't know if I said it at the beginning for the listener's sake, but you live in suburban Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson's the uh, the capital, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think I've ever had anybody from Mississippi on the show, which is why another reason I was actually excited yeah. to talk to you about it because I don't know anything about the market. <laughs> so I guess my two questions are, is is the bulk of what you do or where is, I should, I should phrase it that way, where is the bulk of what you do? Is it in Jackson? Is it the state of Mississippi? Is it vaster? And then today in terms of what you're doing amongst all those different uh, disciplines, what are you allocating your time to? Sure. Um, number one, yeah, the majority of what I have done in the past has been in the state of Mississippi, mostly in the central part of the state down south, what we call the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And I would say going forward, especially a lot of the uh, investments that I do personally, we're looking at doing more things in South Alabama in the panhandle of Florida. Uh, we're licensed in uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, and the state of Florida, although we don't work the whole state. We we focus a lot more on the panhandle. You know, I always tell people kind of a four-hour ring of Jackson is kind of what we'll do, and it's easy for us to get get somewhere and get back when we need to. Uh, the one more the one more thing that we do that you didn't mention, which is kind of where I'm putting some of my focus right now is, and this is another way I, I backed into this, dude, but I do court-appointed receivership work for CMBS lenders and or any other special servicer that takes back distressed real estate. Um, I cut my teeth in distressed real estate when I got in the investment side, bought a lot of properties out of foreclosures or bank notes. And so back in 2008, when we were building our management division, I had a, a special servicer come to town and drove them around and you know, showed him kind of the lay of the land and he found out how much distressed real estate work we had done at that point. And uh, that's how I got in the court appointed receivership work. So we were obviously pretty busy in nine and 10 and 11 doing that kind of work. And then like everything, every market cycles around and we weren't doing a lot anymore. Although I probably had at least one receivership assignment almost every year. Well, I'm in three of them right now. And I'm going to contemplate that I'm going to be in probably a few more uh, before the end of the year, just because of kind of where we are in the market. But, you know, that's really I wouldn't say that's a really a different type of, of service. I mean, that kind of really runs along with our asset management platform that we do, because that's really what receivership is, is a form of asset management. But I do buy distressed real estate, and I do have a lot of experience in turning around distressed real estate. So this really falls in line of what my wheelhouse is. And I think we're going into a market where a lot of investors and a lot of property managers have not had to experience of how to turn around distressed real estate. So um, I'm hopeful that that skill set that I once had that I haven't had to use in a couple of years will will come in handy going into what I believe is a, a little bit of a uh, uh, certainly a cloudy market. I'll just call it that cloudy market. OK, yeah. All right. Just to set the stage, 
Do you still then, do you still have the property management company now? Yes, I own a commercial property management company, and then I own separately a multifamily management company with a partner. And we manage about 1,400 apartment units in the Gulf South. And again, that includes like Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Panhandle. Again, I we don't get too much farther past Panama City, but... Okay, very interesting. So, so in terms of moving forward here with these opportunities emerging, what asset classes? And maybe you know the answer to this, and maybe you don't because you, you don't necessarily know what's going to you know emerge. But what asset, what asset classes do you think you're going to end up acquiring that are distressed opportunities? Sure, uh, small multifamily. Uh, I don't think there's any question. I think that. The small multifamily uh, market, and when I say small, I would probably classify that as, you know, 20 to 50 units, maybe 60 units. I think that there was some very aggressive pricing that happened over the last couple of years. We're not seeing the rental rate growth uh, today that that maybe the owners were seeing a couple of years ago. On top of that, expenses are increasing certainly faster than rents increasing. And then, of course, you know, at some point, you know, someone's going to have to bring their interest rate to market versus, you know, what they had uh, over five, five years ago. So I think there's just a lot of headwinds for that that property type at that level. And we certainly rather buy projects 100 units and above like everybody else. I don't think that there will be as many opportunities as there will be in the smaller multifamily. And some of that is just because I believe a lot of people that have bought the smaller multifamily probably don't have as much liquidity to pull themselves out of any trouble that they may be in. Uh, that's one property type. I would say the second one that I'm going to try to take, you know, uh, opportunities for is the short-term rental market. I think that got way overheated. I think there were a lot of people who jumped out and bought four or five. And and the latest statistic I saw, the VRBO and Airbnb uh, are, are not seeing the reservations that they saw this time last year, that they don't think revenue will keep pace over the next year or two. Some of that will be that, that money that people got during the PPP days and the COVID days are running out. And the inflation, quite honestly, is pinching a lot of people. And then I don't think I have to tell you the office is still hurting. And I mean, we've got projects, we've got office projects too. And I mean, you know, we, we do have people renewing, uh, but they only want half the size spaces that they currently occupy. So that's still going to be an issue. Uh, the office market's still going to have some headwinds itself just as uh, leases are expiring. And uh, like they always say, investors have to have, you know, you have to be able to stay in the game and you got to have the liquidity stay in the game. And uh, and I just think that there's a lack of liquidity out there amongst the, the investment markets. Well, so. I, now I have like 100 questions from what you did. Yeah, said. okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fascinating conversation that I've been looking forward to have. I heard you on another podcast. You, you may or may not remember that. Uh, I guess my first question is this is, is I haven't had anybody say that, you know, the 100 unit guys and north of that are on more solid footing. You didn't say that. I, I'm saying that I'm paraphrasing your words compared to this, the smaller guys, you know, they tend to have more liquidity. But my understanding is that, look, a lot of these 
you know, multifamily syndicators, it could be 200 units, it could be 300 units, had such aggressive borrowing with all the, with exactly what you just described, you know, those, those, uh, you know, those are going to adjust, borrowing costs are going to double, increased expenses, uh, rents coming down. And, uh, you know, so I, I guess my, I'm putting it as a, as a fact, but it's intended yeah. as a question where, why am I, why would it be more that, you know, the guys with 20 to 50 or 60 units would be in a different situation? Well, I'll, uh, I'll, and I almost brought that up on the syndication side. I, you know, I, I've sold a lot of multifamily, 100 units and above, it, you know, and, and not every, there's been a lot of private companies that are buying 100 units and above. And there was a lot of 1031 transactions where, I mean, I think probably half, 50% of the multifamily that I sold in the last couple of years were some form of 1031 where they were bringing in a significant amount of equity. So I would bifurcate your statement into, into two areas. Number one, the people that actually bought multifamily 100 units or 200 units but are not syndicators, but brought a significant amount of 1031 money. Are they going to be happy? No. Are they going to get the return that they thought they were going to get? No. But I agree with you. I think where the opportunities will be will be the syndicators. And then not just because they had very aggressive performance, but because the way the syndicators, a lot of syndicators get paid, they get paid last. And I think once the syndicators look at these assets and they realize, hey, I'm going to operate this thing for five years. And if this thing doesn't, once we reprice this thing and there's not enough cash flow, there's nothing in it for me. I think a lot of these syndicators are just going to walk away. And I think some of these LPs are going to be in trouble. They're going to be looking for another general partner. So yeah, I, I would agree with you. There's going to be some heartache and some headwinds in the 100 units and above. But I think most of that's going to come from the syndicators and not necessarily the high net worth individuals that rolled a big turn 1031 in because we saw a lot of that in the multifamily market. I mean, where there was 40% equity being brought to a lot of these. Again, doesn't mean the project's going to work out like they want. It's just that they have enough equity to weather the storm. But the syndicators who stepped into these 200 unit deals and brought 20% in equity on a 30 year amortization. And this thing is going to get repriced. If I remember, uh, I had a uh, Casey Conway, who's an economist, red shoe economist, if you ever listen to him. I mean, there are people there, the NACREP, which is the National Association of Real Estate Fiduciaries. I mean, they're predicting anywhere from 15 to 40% value correction in a lot of real estate. And, you know, 15% could be on the good projects, 40% could be on some, could be on the bad projects. But my point to that is, is that there's a lot of equity that's going to come off the table. And if you stepped into a project in the last two years and you're not in an area that's appreciating, then there's a likelihood that property could get reappraised and there could be zero equity in the property or very little equity in the property. So when you say uh, some of those syndicators that get paid last and only on upside that they're that's not going to materialize. I mean, well, uh, they could. I, I'm not. Uh, like, they're good. They're good syndicators out there that I think that will that will that will stay involved to protect the LPs. But let's face it, there's a lot of new syndicators out there, and I'm not saying that they went into these deals, but they didn't. I mean, you know, most of these deals. You know, sometimes you just aggressively underwrite and then when you get into it, you realize things don't happen the way it's supposed to happen. And I'm just saying that there are a lot of syndicators are, I think, going to realize that, hey, that 
man, I, I mean, there may never be any money for me down the road in this thing. And they very well may just walk away. Man. No, I, I, I in no way was challenging you because I, yeah, agree, yeah, with, I yeah. agree with you a, a trillion percent. My question yeah. is to you, Brian, is when you say walk away, does that mean giving the keys back? Like what are the variations? No, I think that they'll just away? walk away from the project. And I think the LPs will be looking around looking for a GP to step in. And uh, we would love to play that part. We've got a lot of experience. And I mean, it may be that, you know, we, I have a, I won't say a fund, but I have a earmarked amount of money with some very high net worth people that we're all, we're offering rescue capital, you know, and, and a lot of times that may come in and recapitalize a note, you know, sometimes, you know, these apartments may, you know, they can't get to the next level or it could be a, a multifamily, could be an office, could be a retail, they can't get, they can't get occupancy up or they can't, they can't add any value because there's not enough money for capital improvements. And I think what we're going to see the opportunities that exist are going to come from the fact that a lot of these loans are going to need to be recapitalized. And what I mean by that is, is if you made a loan on a property, let's say $5 million and you put down 20%, which is a million and the property reappraised for 4.3, you know, a lot of properties go into receivership because of loan covenants, not because the the uh, payments aren't being made. But if you ever read your loan covenants, your loan covenants state that you've got to keep a minimum of 80% loan to value. So when a property reprices itself to 4.2 from $5 million and you borrowed four, then the bank has the right. And a lot of times they will say that you've got to recapitalize this note to where you're 80% loan to value based on the new value of the property. And that's when I think a lot of syndicators or general partners are going to walk away and realize that they just, you know, there there is no money out there to do that. Somebody, so if the LPs want to save their equity and assuming that there still is equity there, then somebody's going to have to come in and recapitalize the note, get a brand new loan, put money down, make sure that all the loan covenants are met. Plus, you know, be able to run the project through a, a, a fairly turmoil time. I mean, it could be. I don't. Every market's different, by the way. Even in look at Florida, because you know we do a lot of stuff in the Panhandle, and that is a phenomenal market. But the insurance costs have doubled and tripled, um, you know, over the last year or two. And I'm sure a lot of that was never forecasted, you know, in the performance. And we already know the largest foreclosure in multifamily in the last five years just happened. I think it was 3,000 units in Houston. And that was claimed to be all from the increase of insurance cost. So here's a market doing pretty well. The only thing that has changed is the insurance cost. Plus, I'm sure that the rental increases didn't really come in to what was underwritten. So again, I'm, I, there's a myriad of reasons why Proformers aren't met, but I'm just saying that a lot of these syndications weren't done with a, with enough reserve to cover some of the issues that a lot of operators are facing. I get it, and I yeah. and I see it. Half a step back, so even in the short term rental space, because there's probably been of uh, my guess would be oversupply, like you said, market to market, but there's probably oversupply there. People thought they yeah. could make 25, 30% on their money. And the next thing you know, they can't. So I guess from your perspective, and you said some of these people, they bought four or five, what would be your business plan? Because that's not, you know, a 150 unit apartment building. Yeah. Did you uh, buy, like, what do you do? You, I don't, I don't hear that you've yeah. you know, managed short term, you know, uh, houses, but so what, what's the plan there? Would be the plan. <laughs> I almost hate to admit this, Rogers. I, I probably don't have a good enough plan. 
but I just know that that is an, an opportunity to go in there and buy maybe bulk, uh, you know, maybe I looked at buying short-term rentals in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, back about, back 2019 and 20 before COVID. And then we also, we also travel quite a bit to the Florida Panhandle, which is Santa Rosa Beach and some of those places. And we look there as well. And when I tell you that I could have bought a two bedroom cabin in Gatlinburg, a nice one for like one hundred and ninety to two hundred fifteen thousand dollars. And I mean, every six months, it seemed like it went up fifty thousand dollars and to a point where they got into the three hundreds and three twenty fives for the exact same rental unit. Same thing happened in Santa Rosa Beach and the rental amounts only increased very incrementally. I mean, so it just short-term rentals just became kind of a darling of my age group and maybe yours too, Roger, you know, when you wanted to be a real estate investor, you kind of started investing in low-end houses, you know, single family houses. That's where I started. And that's probably where 80% of the people started. And it seemed like over the last couple of years, it seemed like the short-term rentals is where everybody started. And I just think that there were a lot of people that were buying on trailing 12 months and if you talk to a lot of people who really understand the short-term rental market, they'll tell you don't buy any short-term rental unless you base it off of 2018 or 19 revenue, not 21 or 22, because those are inflated numbers. You know, there was a lot of money in the market after COVID when so many families got money and so many people were off. And and I think now things are occupancy rates and re- rental rates are coming back to more normal levels and they're not meeting the expectations of the people who went out and bought these things. You know, as I hear you talk, that's, I think that's one category that more than most, maybe more than any actually boomed during COVID, like the dynamics COVID helped that. Right. It, you know, it did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people wanted a piece of, they wanted to be in a cabin and away from people. And, and I mean, bookings were going up and, I mean, go back to 2018 and 19. Most people didn't even know what short-term rental was. Exactly. I mean, most of the people had never heard of it. And the only reason why I knew about it is that a uh, friend of mine in GoBundance had started buying and renting these things. And and I asked him what he was doing. I mean, ev- I mean, where I'm from, we we everybody's you know has owned condos in Florida, but it was usually you put it with the big management companies that charge you 35 percent to man. You know, it was never. It was kind of almost a way to own a piece of real estate and have three weeks a year free, you know, kind of thing. But, but you know, there's a lot of sophistication that has entered that short-term rental market pretty quick. And all of a sudden now people were doing it and, and being able to use online platforms like Verbo and Airbnb and anyway. And it seemed like about the time I started getting interested in it, I mean, prices started skyrocketing to a point where the economics didn't make sense, but people were still buying them. So. Interesting. You know, the thing that always concerned me about short-term rentals, it is, it just seemed like apart from the, the, the threat of, of if municipalities change their regulations around it, which is always kind of an existential threat, yeah. depending on what the market is and how they, how, how much they want to encourage tourism, et cetera, et cetera. But aside from that, it seemed like it was, it was hard to control competition. You know, if you're going to go build a hotel, you might have another hotel across the, the way, you know, being built too, but, but all of a sudden you could have, you know, 20% of a market be short-term rentals or 30 and all of a sudden there's so much oversupply. 
and then people also can you know change their travel habits. Well, anyway, that that that's enough on on short term rentals. I guess in terms of from a principal perspective, Brian, what are your, most of your holdings? I, I I think you had office stuff, correct? Yeah, I have. Uh... I started out in office and retail and I love shopping centers. I, I don't, there's, to me, there's just nothing better than a small, uh, what we call strip centers, which are just small neighborhood shopping centers. I mean, that I, I would tell you that's my favorite asset type. And sometimes you have to pay a little more, a little bit lower cap rate to get them, but man, they're always well occupied. They're easy to, to manage. They're not as hard to lease. I did cut my office and uh, I mean, cut my my experience in office and I started buying a lot of office property. But I would tell you over the last five years, uh, I've not I've gotten out of office a little bit just because, you know, early on it, it was, you know, you get good management fees and leasing fees. But it, it's, um, you know, there always seems, you know, every time a tenant moves in and moves out, there's always seems to be work that you have to do and paint and carpet, take a wall down, put a wall up. And, you know, I always call it the, you know, sometimes you're two steps forward, one step back. And and if I do buy office or if I look at office, it's definitely suburban office. It's not high rise or mid rise buildings. There are guys out there who love it and they swear by it and they make piles of money doing it, but they have a lot of liquid reserves and they've got, a, you know, uh, they've got a lot of money set aside for TI and commissions and TI is a tenant improvements. And, and it's not uncommon to have a accounting firm or a law firm or whatever come in and want to sign a five year, eight year, 10 year lease, but they want half a million dollars in improvements made before they move in. And I mean, it's unless you've just got a ton of liquidity or deep line of credit, that's very hard to do. I personally don't like reinvesting every time a tenant moves in and out. So I really do like the multi-tenant industrial and the multi-tenant retail uh, is probably my my two favorite types. But what about industrial? I do like it. Well, I like the multi-tenant small bay industrial. I'm, I'm not, I mean, I've had chances to buy single tenant larger industrial and I usually pass just because you know, it's good when it's good and it's bad when it's bad. You know, in other words, if the tenant ultimately leaves and it seemed like that's the case in a lot, you know, ultimately the lease comes up and they look for somewhere else or they go out of business. The time that it takes to release, sometimes it's, I mean, it's expensive, you know, and, and I guess I like I like cash flow and I like predictable cash flow. So I like multi-tenant better, you know, where there's not a lot of anchor tenants, where there's large tenants with a lot of space. I like, that's why I like small shopping centers and small multi-tenant industrial where, you know, one tenant leaves and it doesn't hurt your cash flow. And so that's kind of why I'm not saying that single tenant, you know, net lease properties are bad. I, I know a lot of people who buy them and, they love them, but that's that's probably not my my deal. So, just out of curiosity, near where you are, let's call it Jackson Metro, or or let's extend it into other areas of the state that you do business in. Let's extend it even further. Let's let's go let's go Alabama. Uh, yeah, Gulf know. South. I always tell people Gulf South is our market. Yeah. All right, Gulf Gulf South. What what are cap rates on a thirty year old? strip center, you know, so not brand new, but not falling apart. Yeah. They're typically in that mid to high eight range. You know, you, if, if you've got a solid, like really good corner, you may get into the low eights, 
maybe even high sevens, but there's got to be a real reason for me to buy something out of an, you know, below an eight cap. I mean, there's got to be some value add or there's got to be some, you know, several tenants that are below market or anything for me to be able to buy anything sub eight. Are they hard to find? Because that to me sounds like a, a pretty good opportunity in today's environment. It sounds like you go in and, you know, put down, you know, 40%, borrow 60 and, you know, probably, you know, have decent cash flow. Yeah. Close of es- escrow. Are those hard to find or no? Uh, not really. Not if you're looking in that eight range. They're not hard to find. It's just you want to make sure you've got a good property and you want to make sure that you've got solid tenants. You know, Jackson in, in Mississippi in general and in, in, in a lot of parts of Louisiana and Alabama, we're, we're what we call cash flow markets. And that doesn't matter whether you're office, retail, multifamily. We don't have a ton of appreciation in those markets. So it's not like California where, you know, you're not worried about cash flow because your property's going to be worth 50% more than it was, you know, in three years. We're not a huge appreciation market. We're a cash flow market. So a lot of your returns going to come on your operational side, not necessarily on your disposition side. And now you get into the panhandle of Florida where we do some work, it's different, you know, you're going to get a lot more aggressive pricing. You're going to see more appreciation. Cash flow might be a little tight, but you're going to get some appreciation in rents. So, I, but I would tell you the large majority of the markets that we deal in outside of the panhandle are cash flow markets. So you are going to see higher cap rates. And uh, a lot of times people come from out of state or out, you know, and, and we call the East Coast, West Coast, and they don't necessarily understand that. And they see an eight and a half cap and they think, wow, man, this is what what a deal. And in five years, they're a little disappointed because they were too aggressive on their projections. And, you know, and, and again, we're just not a huge appreciation market. There are certainly markets in Mississippi and Alabama that are doing very well and appreciating. But as a large majority, we are a, a cash flow market. Right? Yeah, I mean, what I kind of am thinking as you describe that mm-hmm. is that, you know, those are not growth uh, is, is setting aside the Gulf Coast of Florida. But let's talk Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi. They're not big growth markets. Maybe they're flat. Maybe they could even be down a point or two. I don't know, depending on the year. But in my mind, I'm thinking as you're talking that there inevitably are sub markets that are growing the the people want to live in. Uh, where, you know, if you can get an eight cap and I understand it's still not going to appreciate like New York or California, but you could have yourself a pretty steady asset with, you know, great tenants and, and, and not a lot of attrition and great cash flow. And to me, that's not such a bad thing. No, not at all. No, I mean, in the market that I'm in, the sub market that, that I live, I mean, we've had double digit growth almost 10 years in a row. And if you look at Mississippi, Mississippi's only grown 2%, you know, every year. So there's no doubt. And or go to Alabama and look at Huntsville. I, I'm not, I don't even know how much they've grown the last 10 years. It's, I mean, they, they almost have no frictional vacancy there. Like, I mean, there's just, there's just nothing in every property type. So, 
there's you're right there's but there's sub markets in all of these states that are doing phenomenally well and whereas you're right i mean the majority of the the other markets are are fairly flat or increasing just a little bit above inflation so um but no the, the, you're and you're right i mean i think a cash flow markets are great if you're looking for cash flow and predictability and you're not looking for a, a, a an entry and a quick exit and I think our markets are very, very good. That's why a lot of people come here for our multifamily is our multifamily product here is very slow and steady, but it's very predictable. Hmm. Very interesting. Do you syndicate deals? I do mostly what I would call group investments. And I know some people would call those syndications, but group investments doesn't necessarily have the uh, the LPGP um, uh, friction. A lot of times, I'll I'll go in as a joint venture with other investors or investment companies, and or um, I'll go find a really good deal or two or a package, and I'll just go talk to some high net worth individuals, and we'll all put our equity in together, and we'll form a little small investment group to own those. So I don't do a lot of syndication in terms of a GP raising money for from LPs, you know. So that's kind of the difference between a group investment and a syndication, you know. I see. You, you'd still probably charge, you'd probably have to charge the entity, though, fees, correct, management yes. fees yes. and what have you. I mean, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I look, we look at the SS Group as just like any other third-party leasing and management company that gets paid. You know, and there are times that when I put a group of investors together that I get a little bit of an asset management fee because I'm filing the tax returns. I'm making the decisions, you know, as a third party management company, when we get a lease drafted, we send it to the owners and that owner's got to review the lease and approve it and sign it and all that kind of stuff. And I wind up being that person for our investment group. And so, yeah, I do get a little bit of an asset management fee, you know, sometimes, not all the time, but so, you know, some of the fees operate similar to a syndication, but it just doesn't have that LP GP structure. And in the group investments, a lot of times we're all signing on the bank note. You know, whereas in the syndications, that's not the case. Um, but I love the joint venture model, you know, and that's one of the things that we're offering, you know, especially in the multifamily arena right now, that if these big California or West Coast, East Coast investment companies want to come in and, and buy some multifamily and maybe it's a heavy value add, we'd love to be the local partner. We'll put up some of the equity. We'll take a small percentage of the ownership, but then you've got a partner that's handling a lot of the, you know, the value add renovations and lease ups and that sort of thing. And so we love the JV model. So we think it works well. I see. I'm going to wind this all the way back to the beginning. This is a question I wanted to ask you. Sure. With your appraiser background, because I don't really know much about a, a, the appraisal business. How does that inform, you know, what you do today on the acquisition side? Are like our appraisals accurate? Are there agendas with with appraisers? I mean, what? How does that inform what you do now? Yeah, I, well, I'll, I'll answer that two ways. Number one, it was a very good skill set. I mean, appraisers have a lot of rules and regulations of what they can do, and a lot of that's coming from the lender side. So that's that's a completely different animal, and I'll I'll fast forward that to to what's happening today, but. When I was an appraiser for five, six, seven years, 
what I got really good at doing was understanding how to value and underwrite properties. And so that's the skill set that I bring today from being an appraiser. But the appraisal business is a lot more than just knowing how to value properties. I mean, there's so many rules and regulations to appraisers and what they can do and what they can't do and the types of comps that they can have. And I wouldn't sit here and tell you that I was the best appraiser. I probably, you know, when it comes to the rules and regulations, I might hit the nail on the head on the value side, but you know, I might use comps that are a little bit old, but were more reliable. And but but yeah, in today's market, I, do I find inaccurate appraisals? Well, of course I do. And a lot of that's the fact that these appraisers have a lot of handcuffs on them because of what they can and can't do, and what comps they can use, and which ones are too old, which ones are are too far away, even though they may be very relevant. And the problem with appraisers, and, and of course, it's not anything they can do, but appraisers, we always like to joke, appraisers look through the rearview mirror. Everything they do is based on historical data. And so when the market's going up like it has over the last couple of years, and appraisers are having to use comps that are two and three years old, but the market is dictating, you know, that that prices are up because construction costs are up, supply is down, you know, a lot of times appraisers just can't catch up with the trends. There's not enough sale data to allow the appraiser to hit the appropriate range, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay, we're winding down. You've done, you know, you are doing and have done a lot, a lot of different things. What would you say are maybe biggest mistakes you've made and what you learned from them? <laughs> uh, oh, gosh. You know, um, not vetting partners would probably be a big one. Not going into partnerships with the right alignment. You know, that's a big one because, you know, you can deal with the real estate sometimes, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many houses I bought and should have checked the roof and I didn't and it cost me a new roof or it cost me a water heater or whatever. But, you know, those are, you know, those are things that you just fix and you move on. But partnerships, you know, and 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 or you know, not watching my, when you buy shopping centers and office buildings, I would tell you, here's a big mistake that I've made and other people make it too, is, you know, a lot of times when you buy commercial, you, you have a five-year balloon or five-year call, you know, you may get 20-year amortization, but but your note's going to roll in five years. And I think that's what's going to hurt a lot of investors going forward. That's when the new rates are going to come in. But always watch your lease expirations and how it relates to your refinance. I've made that mistake where I've had a, a buy a property with six years left on the lease and my anchor tenant in year five that I'm trying to renew still has one year left on their lease, but they don't want to commit to renewing at that point. It's hard to get refinanced or hard to get any sort of financing when your anchor tenant has got one or two years left on the lease and they uh, and they won't commit to releasing. So you're always going in, make sure that you're, that your financing and your call, that whatever your, you know, your financing terminates, make sure that it aligns correctly with your lease renewals. Uh, that was a big one for me. And yeah, just slowing down and doing due diligence and uh, making sure that you understand the property. When I buy properties, I always get estoppel certificates from the tenants. I don't let the seller tell me what the what the tenants wanted or didn't want or whatever. I always get estoppel certificates 
And uh, I've been burned many a times after closing a property and three of the shopping center tenants or the office tenants will come and the landlord had promised this or promised that, or I'm not supposed to pay rent for three months because I did my own TI last year. I can't tell you how many times that that has happened to me. And so somewhere about, you know, the third, fourth, fifth year, I started buying commercial. I just made it a point that I would never buy another property unless every tenant signed off. Uh, you know, that this is your chance to, to list any and all things on the lease, any promises made by the landlord. And so, uh, and that way after closing, we're all on the same page. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm just laughing because I, I could see how that would be so easy to, to, to oh. have to learn that lesson. I, 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 I get it. Uh, oh, so, yeah. and so you, you learn and eventually you've seen that movie. In terms of the stress that we were talking about earlier, do you see that happening more in one asset versus another? I do. I think any, I, be honest with you, I think any property type that had a fast run up is going to probably be in some form of distress. And, and, I, and again, I'll say I think it's going to be the small multifamily. Uh, I think there's going to be some short term rental distress. Again, how I capitalize on it, Roger, is a different story because I don't have a short-term rental management company, but I just feel like that there's probably some ways to go out there and go buy it and then maybe sell them off one by one and make money that way. I don't know, but I think self-storage can have a little distress, not not nationwide, but I think that that was a property type that it seemed like everybody jumped into over the last three or four years. You know, uh, I think, again, office will have some heartburn just because of the nature of COVID. I think retail will have a, I, I was shocked. I thought retail had, had was doing pretty well, but the latest numbers, um, the CMBS, the special servicers said that retail actually delinquency rates were the highest uh, over the last quarter than any other property type. And that kind of shocks me, but. Um, really? Yeah, but what, so, what do they mean by, re so what's the definition of retail in that context? Well, and, and that's a good question because is, you know, I think those are going to be more lifestyle centers, community centers, places with big boxes would mm -hmm. be my guess. I wouldn't think that the small strip center or neighborhood center are being affected quite as much. The only thing that I am a little worried is, you know, I think some of the restaurants are still struggling a little bit. I think the mom and pop restaurants are still struggling from COVID. And a lot of them, unfortunately, didn't qualify for PPP because if you know, you had to have payroll to be able to get PPP. And a lot of the small restaurants don't have payroll. You know, people are hourly or they get right. paid by tips and the owners get paid off the bottom line. And so we're still seeing some small mom and pop restaurants struggling right now. And, but uh, but but I would think the retail that's having the most problem right now would be what I call power centers, community centers, where there's a lot more big boxes. So, yeah, I get it. I get it. Well, this has yeah. been a uh, we, we've covered an awful lot of ground, which I we did, didn't we? <laughs> we sure did, man. I want to do it again with you, uh, Brian. If one were to just kind of learn about more about what you're doing and tap into your uh, your brain trust of experience, how would they do that? Sure. I would uh, encourage them to email me. I'm a pretty approachable person. You know, I like sharing things. And, and I mean, I'm in the business of helping people. And sometimes I get commissions. Sometimes it's just helping people. And, you know, I, I'm happy to discuss some things. But I would say email is best. My email address is Brian, that's B-R-I-A-N, at Estes, E-S, T-E-S group, 
G-R-O-U-P dot net, N-E-T. Got it. That's the easiest way to get in touch with me. And you may want to reference this podcast. And and yeah, happy happy to help any way I can. I think that's what I love about the investor community, man. It's 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 a lot of like-minded individuals and and uh, and I've learned a lot from other people, and I think it's hopefully it's my time to help to help others. That's healthy way of looking at it, man. Yeah. Brian, this has been fantastic, and uh, I look forward to doing it again. And thank you a zillion uh, a zillion times for your uh, time today. Fantastic, Roger. Thank you for your time as well, and appreciate what you do. Talk to you soon. Thank you. 